0: pray with me. Holy Spirit, come. Move among us. Breathe upon us. That The scripture has been read, and as your word is proclaimed, we might hear and receive with joy what you say to us this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Just not fair. Any of you kids ever said that? Any of you adults? Uh-huh. You just try to say it where the kids can't hear you. I know. This, it's not fair. It, this expression that we've all used. Of our sense that justice has been violated, that we aren't being treated in the way that we should be. We hear something like this at the end of our gospel reading this morning. When the laborers who started at the beginning of the morning say, We've worked all day. We've labored through the long summer heat. They only showed up for the last hour and you're treating us as equal. It's not fair. I think we hear this note in Jonah's voice as well. God, you said you were gonna punish these evil Ninevites, but now they've repented and you just forgave them. What you told me to prophesy isn't even gonna come true. His sense of justice in the right order of things is offended. And from a sufficient distance, I think the problem in both of these passages is sufficiently obvious that this protest of the unfairness of things puts them in a position of accusation against God. Their outraged sense of justice leads them to take offense against God himself. And scripture, I want to suggest, deliberately shows us this conflict, this collision between two senses of justice. First of all, to show us something about God but also, secondly, to show us something about ourselves. So that thirdly, ultimately, it can invite us to encounter this God in this place of confrontation, of collision, and turn toward him and participate in the merciful righteousness and the generous justice of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Those are the three things I want us to look at together this morning. What these texts reveal about God, what they reveal about us, and then how that encounter brings us face to face face-to-face with this God. First of all, what do they reveal about God? They show us that the justice of God desires redemption and not destruction. Just so we're clear about this, the Ninevites are cruel and violent and they've inflicted cruelty and violence on the chosen people of God, Jonah's own people, there's a reason he wants to see them destroyed. They're oppressors. They've oppressed the people he loves. They've perpetrated acts of profound evil. And what we hear in this text is that they've walked right up to the edge of being obliterated for their sin. They are under divine judgment, and they deserve it. And yet... What happens when they hear Jonah's message? Scripture says they believed God. And they make this radical act of repentance from the king down to the peasant, everyone in the whole city, even the animals, even the kids, the adult, everybody fasts, prays, puts on sackcloth. They turn from their wickedness. They don't even know if it's possible for them to receive forgiveness. It might be too late the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Let's try. And what happens? Verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. St. Augustine says, In uncertainty they repented and obtained certain mercy. This is the God we encounter in these scriptures. The God who, as Father Lee reminded us last Sunday in his sermon, we pray every Sunday in the prayer of humble access. A God whose character is always to have mercy. A God who says through the prophet Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. If you ever find yourself thinking, it's too late for me, I've screwed up too much, I've put myself beyond the reach of God's mercy, I have good news, you didn't. The hour of death or judgment could come at any time. It's just coming through the door for the Ninevites. This is their last chance. And yet, until that moment comes, there's still a chance. Like the Ninevites, you can turn from your wickedness and live. And if the God revealed in scriptures is profoundly merciful, he's also incredibly generous. Did you notice in Jesus' parable here from Matthew 20, the householder doesn't tell the laborers he hires at the third and sixth and ninth hour how much he's going to pay them. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. And They say, okay, and they go work. Those hired at the eleventh hour, he doesn't actually promise to pay at all check it out. He just says, you go into the vineyard too. They don't know. Are, are we going to get some kind of payment at the end of this day? Or are we just working kind of on speculation, hoping that we can earn our way to a full day's labor and getting paid tomorrow, that he might hire us then if we work out? They don't have a lot of options at this point. The day is almost over. How are we going to pay for dinner tonight? And yet, at the end of the day, the master instructs his steward to give everyone full pay for a day's labor, whether they earned it or not. They get an honest to goodness living wage. It's enough to provide for their family. It's enough to begin work or searching for work with hope tomorrow. This master would make a terrible business tycoon. He's paying more than he has to. He's giving away money. He's going to get fired as CEO. But that's the point. God's grace isn't limited by a lack of resources. And God's goodness is not constrained by what we deserve. St. Paul writes, this is a God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And you would expect a reaction of some amazement and excitement. And I imagine in Nineveh, when they aren't blotted from the face of the map, That's what happens. These 11th hour workers are sprinting home shouting. But those who worked all day respond not with happiness, but with outrage. They're furious. As Kenneth Bailey points out, the problem is not that they've been underpaid. No one is underpaid in this parable. The problem is some people are drastically overpaid. Notice what do the all-day workers say? You've made them equal to us. It's not fair. We worked so much more. Surely we should get paid a little extra. Where's our bonus? And they respond to the generosity of the master with anger and resentment. God presses Jonah on this. Twice he says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And the second time after the plant incident, Jonah explodes back. Yes! You better believe I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. These people deserve judgment and not mercy. You know that. If you're going to behave like this, just dealing out forgiveness, I don't want anything to do with it. Count me out. Just kill me now. I'm done. It's better for me to die than to live. And okay, it's easy for us to hear Jonah as a little bit of a drama queen here. I'm angry enough to die. But is it possible that he's just more honest than the rest of us? It turns out that pretending not to be angry doesn't mean we're not. Yes, God, I do well and you do wrong. That's the implication. My anger is justified unlike your forgiveness. And the irony is that Jonah is the one who describes God's mercy most clearly in this passage. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knows what God is like. But in Jonah's mouth, these words become words of accusation. I knew it. I knew you were like this. I don't want them to repent and be forgiven. I want to see them burn. I don't want to be an instrument of them being reconciled to you, God. No, Jonah. Do you see how this zeal for justice, which is good, which is right, can get twisted up and set, set itself against God's desire not to destroy sinners, but to bring them to salvation? How easy is this? See, these readings show us what God is like, and in so doing, they also show us ourselves. We want God to be on our side and against our enemies. Don't let those people repent. Don't make me forgive them. We want God to make the distinctions we do. I've worked so hard for you, Lord, and he did one easy job for like five minutes. How come he gets all the accolades? I've done so many things for her. Did you see the way she treated me? You going to do anything about that, Lord? Okay, yes, I believe that God can forgive those sinners, but I've obeyed him all along. Shouldn't I get a little credit? Where's my bonus? We construct this elaborate sense of our own identity by comparison And then God's mercy and generosity comes plowing through and just smashes it. And we say, What are you doing? You've made them equal to us. It's not right. It's not fair. Remember justice, Lord? We deserve better. And the master says, Well, hold up. Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? We had this conversation. Didn't I give you what you were owed? Don't you have everything that's yours? And of course they do. But here's the problem. Their sense of what's fair and what's just has been built on comparison with others and not on the promises of the master. You see that in this parable? Their understanding of justice and rightness is based on comparison with others, not on... The promises of the Master. There's a statement I've heard variously attributed to Teresa of Avila, Shakespeare, others. I don't know who said it, but it's true. Comparisons are odious. And Jesus' parable is designed to press against just this point, to challenge our sense of justice. The Master literally says to the first workers, I will pay you what's right, right. The Greek word dikaios, it's the root word for justice, for righteousness. He's opening up the question by saying to these workers he hires in the midst of the day, well, what is it right? What is it just for me to pay? Let's think about that. And instead of paying them in the order they started working, which would have been normal behavior, so that the all-day laborers get what they earned, They feel good about their day's labor. They go home happy. No, he intentionally reverses the order and pays the 11th hour workers first. As if to force on their attention this apparent inequity. Start with the latecomers. You've made them equal to us. Have I, though? Or have I given everyone as much as they needed out of the abundance of my generosity? Is it really true that I've somehow diminished the market value of your labor? Or are you just struggling to make sense of a kingdom that doesn't operate on an economics of scarcity and comparison, but on an economy of grace? It's not an accident that both these stories end with a question. We hear God's appeal. Should I not have mercy on this great city of Nineveh? We don't know how Jonah answers. The book stops. The master asks, do you begrudge my generosity? And Jesus ends the parable. He leaves the question hanging because he's not just asking them, is he? He's asking us. Do you begrudge my generosity? And the answer is, if we're honest, sometimes, yeah, actually. We probably do. In showing us God, these stories show us ourselves, they expose our mercilessness, our lack of generosity, our anger, our resentment, our insistence that God should judge us based on our own comparison with others they force a collision between his justice and ours, which is to say they expose our own need for repentance and divine mercy. And in so doing, these scriptures open a door and they invite us in our bitterness and our anger, in this collision of justice, to turn and draw near and meet this God in this place. Because you know who else has been busy all day without rest in Jesus' parable? The master. Again, Kenneth Bailey points this out. Halfway through the parable, we find out the master has a steward. And any good first century hearer is going to say, well, wait a second. If he's got a steward, how come he wasn't going and hiring workers? Put that man to work. And yet the master himself spends all day trekking back and forth to the marketplace finding people he can be generous to, giving them an opportunity for good work so that he can pour out superabundant, undeserved grace and response. What is this God like? What is it just for me to do? He tells the resentful workers, you have what belongs to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Again, I'm quoting Bailey. It's as if he says, you want to take more for yourselves I have chosen to give more of myself. You want to be richer at the end of the day. I've chosen to be poorer at the end of the day. Who is this God? What is he like? How far is he willing to go to extend his grace to those who need it? Jonah's ready to die because this one-night wonder plant faded away. And God says, Jonah, should I be any less concerned about a whole city people made in my image? It's as if he says, Jonah, you're ready to die because of how strongly you feel about my mercy. Well, guess what? So am I. So am I. Jonah goes out the outside the city, he climbs a hill. He sits under a tree and he waits for God to bring divine judgment. But Jesus goes outside the city and climbs a hill and gets nailed to a tree in order to accomplish divine judgment and take it on himself. Not to destroy his enemies, but to make them his friends. You remember what Jesus says on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Why does Jesus end his parable and leave this question hanging? What does God want his servant Jonah to see if not a God who does justice, a costly justice, but a justice full of mercy because he pays the cost himself? What does God want us to see? A master who doesn't abide by our economies of pinched and partial fairness, but who pays the cost and overturns them with the abundance of his grace. A savior who isn't bound by our self-protective, self-promoting notions of justice, but throws open the door even at the 11th hour and says, the repentant are welcome. If only you'll turn to me, there's room for you here. A Lord who won't settle for our bitter and resentful righteousness, our performance, what we think we're owed, but who also graciously comes to us and confronts us and questions us and calls us also to repentance. So that maybe we'll hear this word and turn away from our resentment and self-righteousness and share in the joy of the master's generosity towards sinners like us. These stories stand as a rebuke and a warning to those of us who deep down are really convinced that we're pretty good people, or at least better than average. Remember that comparison thing? Who evaluate ourselves with reference to others rather than the promises of God, who craft this elaborate case for why we think he owes us. Darn it, we deserve better. And this is the warning. This is the choice. We can demand what we deserve, and God will give us what we deserve. What does he say to the workers who worked all day? Take what's yours and go. Or we can quit calculating and comparing and abandon our claims and humble ourselves in repentance to know this God and belong to a kingdom of abundant grace. That's the choice. Jonah is invited in. The Lord is pleading with him to join God, to see the way God sees To remember how merciful God has already been to him. Read the first two chapters of the book. Goodness. And to recognize that God is waiting with even more mercy if only Jonah will accept it. These workers have an opportunity not just to earn the master's wages, but to share the master's heart, to participate in the master's plenty. To get more than what they deserve, to receive God himself. To know him, to be with him, to be like him. To share his love, but they can't earn that. They can only receive it. And so like Jonah and these all-day workers, this morning we're left with a question hanging in the air. Do you begrudge my generosity? Should I not show mercy? Have I not done what is right? Today Jesus is asking us, he's asking you this morning, are you willing to let go of your claims and live in the generous justice of the kingdom? How will you respond to the merciful righteousness of God? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.